Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, a filmmaker and competitive storyteller, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling. My name is Rain Bennett. I am your host, and my job is to help you deepen your connections, increase your sales, and serve your audiences better. Every Monday morning, I send out a storytelling tip to my email subscribers, and I talk about how I have used it in my own storytelling for my clients and for myself, and I leave you with tangible advice on how you can apply it to your strategies. If this sounds like something that would interest you, go ahead and sign up for the newsletter at rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. Again, that's rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. This podcast is a Six Second Stories production. Six Second Stories is a video marketing agency that helps you tell heartfelt stories to maximize your impact in minimal time. Find out more about what we do at sixsecondstories.com. Hello, storytellers. Welcome back to the Storytelling Lab. My name is Rain Bennett. I am your host. Oh my goodness, we are well on our way to 100 episodes and I think we will reach that uh, this season. Is that is that right, Chandler? I think so. Um, she's not here. I'm just talking to the air, but she is listening because she's the one editing this episode. Um, I'm so pumped. I'm so thrilled and fulfilled. Is that the name of an old 60s soul song? I don't know. Thrill me, fulfill me. I don't know. We're running off the rails already in season six, but I'm, I'm just so thrilled and fulfilled from the show. This is... Uh, one of the best decisions I've ever made and primarily it's because of what I get to learn and what I get to help you learn and also one of the things that one of the secondary benefits that I didn't probably foresee when I launched the show was just the connections that I made and the network that I create from it um everybody that I've had on the show um becomes more than an acquaintance. Some of them we collaborate uh, into the future on other projects. Some of them come back in, in, in unexpected ways to add benefit and value to my life. And I could have just never 
forecasted that, and I'm just so grateful for it. I'm also really excited about today's episode. This is a person who I, I was very, very excited to meet. It kind of happened in, a, in an organic and serendipitous way. I believe we connected on LinkedIn uh, initially, and I think there's a little bromance brewing. This is a guy who reminds me of myself, kind of looks like myself, and who described himself as... Uh, uh, I don't know if I called him a country boy or he called himself a country boy, but he said that his childhood was spent shooting shotguns in the swamps of Louisiana. Immediately, I identified with him. And when we connected on LinkedIn, he wrote a sweet message and said that I was you know, a great storyteller, and he specifically liked the one titled uh, How I Found Out That Fish Can Pee or Flounder Can Pee, something like that. But it was a story about when my dad and I were fishing for flounder, and he, uh, and he held one up and while it was just peeing on me when I was like five years old. And of course I burst into tears, but it was a great moment, a great story from my childhood. And so once I I found out that that's the one that resonated with him, I already knew like he was my type of people. So today my guest is Neil Bearden. And Neil is a storytelling expert and he's a professor. He's been a uh, teacher at NCAD, I believe is how you pronounce it. It's a it's a the business school of the world they call it in Singapore. It's I N S E A D, and he teaches storytelling there. He's also um, majored in, in in studied neuroeconomics and psychology. He actually went to school at UNC Chapel Hill, and so he's moving back to Chapel Hill in a few months. And we promised he promised me that we would hang out. So I'm going to hold him to that, even though we're still in this pandemic. Uh, but 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 for several reasons, uh, UNC included, we, we connected on a personal level. Now, when we had the conversation, it was probably five minutes before I teared up. Uh, we connected on a storytelling and a psychological level as well. And that is the theme of this conversation of this episode, the psychology of storytelling. Now, there's a lot of layers of that. We talked about the psychology of telling stories yourself and how hard it is to do that, especially the vulnerable stuff or the things that you're not necessarily proud of. For Neil, it was where he came from. He was dealing with, you know, smart people, business people, you know, kind of out of his element from the people that he grew up among. This sounds very familiar to my story. And that might have caused a little insecurity, a little imposter syndrome. But the more he leaned into that and told his real stories, the more he made connections with people. He was his authentic self. And and the path that uh, his life would follow started to reveal itself. And things started to click for him. Same thing happened to me. Uh, But then we also talked about the psychology of how stories work, why they create connections, what parts of stories make those human connections, and then, you know, how we can use that to to alter our psychology. So we covered we covered so much of how stories work and 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 how minds of humans can connect through storytelling. I got a lot of value out of this, and I know that you will, too. So here's my conversation with Neil Bearden, and I hope you love it. Neil, what's up, my friend? What's up? Good, man. I'm very curious how two handsome, bald country boys <laughs> ended up in the world of storytelling, which seems a far cry from you're from Louisiana, right? Yep. I'm from North Carolina, not too far away, but uh, uh, pretty similar in, in in culture. I find I read something you were talking about, uh, uh, you know, shooting shotguns y- your whole childhood. It sounded sounded pretty familiar. 
how in the hell did we end up here? I grew up going to the deer camp. I called it the deer camp, which uh -huh. was our just, it was a house structure in the middle of the Atchafalaya swamp with a bunch of bunk beds and a bunch of drunk rednecks telling stories. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that, that was my youth, man. So it's, we didn't have Netflix. None of that. I don't even know if we could pick up the radio out there, maybe AM. So just a bunch of rednecks dudes drank the champagne of beer and told stories. Oh man, see, I knew you, I knew we spoke the same language. Um, <laughs> you know, that's funny that you brought that up. It's not exactly where I was going with it, but, but in rural communities like that, and this is, I mean, I think all over the world in different eras, like in, in communities like that, the storytellers, I don't know, maybe that's not fair. Maybe it's just, we come from there, but like in my experience, the, the storytellers of, of the South, especially in rural communities like it's embedded in that culture did you find the same the same thing it sounds like you did yeah and i i don't know i'm i don't know the reason except there was no alternative that might I mean, be you're just, sit, you're just sitting there on the bank with a cane pole for 12 hours or you're out tight lining catfishing at midnight what else are you going to do yeah 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 and as we, you get we, older we weren't discussing brexit <laughs> No, no. And as you get older, then, 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 uh, drugs and alcohol and other things to come, come options for you. But I always found like that, that, that people like my, all my family tells great stories and we tell the same stories every holiday over and over and over again. But I, I really like to kind of think about like, you know, especially with the people that I have on the show that I talk to, like, well, what, what, what led you here? Um, so otherwise, other than having some kind of, um, inspirations uh like that like the people that you grew up in were what kind of kid were you besides the shooting shotgun type i was i was a nerd so i was mm. a nerd until around eighth grade number one kid in the class trophies all that then i got to high school cool kid moved in next door mm. i didn't do I don't know if I can say it on here. I didn't do shit in high school. Complete desolate years. I went to Terra High School in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This is the, in my telling of it, my experience of it, just the peak of the crack cocaine epidemic. Wow. Yeah. And it felt like a Jodie Foster, Foster movie to me. <laughs> the teachers were just making sure that there wasn't conflict, basically. I had four years there finished, had done nothing whatsoever. Dad saying, you need to go to college. I don't know anything about college. Yeah. Hadn't been thinking about college. If I went to Louisiana State University, the good school, I had to have taken two years of a foreign language, chemistry, calculus. I wasn't in any of those classes. I was, I was cutting farts in the back of history class with the other goofballs just laughing at that, not doing anything. So then I went to the college I could get into, Southeastern Louisiana University. And because there I just had to graduate from high school and that was easy enough because everyone did. Spent four years there, no, six years there, four kind of crappy years. And at the end I recovered, picked up, and then since 1997, when I finished, 
and moved to North Carolina where you are for graduate school. Ever since then, well, I need to be careful my language, for a big chunk of that time since then, I was running from that redneck past. I became ashamed of it for a while. And then, yep, and then I started talking about it. And that's a whole nother story about what got me talking about it. But then I started talking about it. I started telling stories about it. And I remembered how incredible it was having that closet full of shotguns, compound bow, blow gun, survival knives, all the crazy shit I had in my college, in my closet as a kid. Hmm. And the wonderful times I had at that deer camp with those rednecks drinking the champagne of beers, I started telling folks about it, telling audiences about it, telling stories about it, and then finally became liberated from that shame that I had about the school I went to and my hillbilly past and all that. And now I embrace it. So I, I like meeting another redneck like you. Dude, I see you're you're vibing with it. I can see I'm it. a cry, man. It's like you just struck me so hard in the heart. Like I was not expecting that. Like, of course, the same thing. Right. I moved to New York, you know, uh, I lost my accent, you know, um, <laughs> you know, tried to be, you know, this thing that I'm not. I mean, uh, that I was. But, I, you know, then social media had started coming out. So then you just give everybody the highlight reel. Right. And I was loving it. My ego was loving it, but yeah, total the same arc of like, then finally understanding and embracing it. And it's okay that it's a little dark at times, uh, you know, and not perfect because what, you know, whose past is whose story is. And so this is not exactly where I was, go I was going to or anticipating going, but like I said, before we started, like, I would just like to see where it goes. This is the perfect example of that. Um, why do we struggle with that? Because everybody's most everybody's story somewhere is tough, right? That's the, that's, that's the point of the story, but we really struggle. And I love that you use that word liberating because I found the same thing, but why do you think that we struggle uh, with telling that authentic story, at least in, uh, initially? Because we have a, a fundamental misunderstanding. We misjudge what the response is going to be. Hmm. We think the response is going to be, look at this idiot. Yeah, he doesn't belong here. He is an imposter. Whatever story you have cooked up, the opposite is generally true. That for me, in my case, when I started talking about those insecurities that I had, sorry, man, you turned that off. When I started doing that, what happened? People came up to me after every story I told about this, man, I went through the same exact thing, the same exact thing. I really appreciate you telling me that. I respect that you did that. And instead of my status getting demoted by being honest, actually it was, it was increased, but who cares about that? But that's just a fact that people should be aware of. What it did do is it opened up a whole bunch of conversations like this one. I never met you before 13 minutes ago I'm moving back to North Carolina in the summer. I can't wait to see you. I know it'll be um, easy as hell to hang out with you. And I've known you now for 14 minutes. Why? Because we've shared these stories. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So we just, just to summarize, we think the response is gonna be negative, but unless our audience, our counterparty is just an asshole, in which case, who cares? But if the person on the other side is a decent human being, it creates relationships, it creates understandings, it creates conversations. 
I feel like we create these phantom monsters like that we just manifest that we create to be afraid of that kind of limits us why the why do we why do we do that i have no idea man you know what i, I mean I, though I think like it's whether- just yeah yeah we do yeah it's just the emperor has no clothes so we we do it yeah mm-hmm. and then if, if you want to really get to the peak of it you go into the so-called professional world where now being quote professional amounts to being phony and not talking about any of these this stuff so why is it like that i don't know because it doesn't make sense because i talk about it all the time you and i are talking about it i'll talk about it with other people today and in every case the outcome is the same oh man i'm glad we're talking about this right do do you and i want do you want to talk about unc basketball right now or do you want to talk about this (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, shit. oh man how's the how's the weather how's covid man yeah how you doing yeah it's good everything's good talking about nothing so there's just the emperor has no clothes and w- when you call it when you talk about it it brings down these walls why are we in this bad equilibrium i don't know man except no one is talking about it mm-hmm. i don't so, have a good explanation so you studied psychology. That was your that was your thing, right? When you went to UNC. Yep. What led you there? So you went to Southeastern for four years, four bad years, as you said. Six, six, man. Six. It took me that long to graduate. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess it took me five. <laughs> took me five. Just got in there. Um, you know, my college experience was also uh, not not a great one. They say it's the the best years of your life. It wasn't true for me. Um, shit, I'm living them now. You know. Um, but what happened? Like, so you seem you you found some direction, but you know, at some point, what led you to that field? You know, all the wrong stuff, man. I didn't really know mm-hmm. what I was signing up for. Gotcha. Silence of the Lambs, movies about FBI profilers. I I romanticized it. Uh-huh. Okay. It it was a mix of that because I didn't end up doing anything like that. I ended mm-hmm. up writing a bunch of computer code when I was doing psych, it was that some notion of being a professor and I always liked books, mm-hmm. being a professor and I could just read books, but I didn't know what the hell it was. If you had asked me what, what's at the end of this process going to do it, I really didn't know. It just, it sounded romantic. And also I just wanted to escape. I wanted to get away. And so it was an opportunity because no one I knew moved away I learned that there was this thing, graduate school, and with graduate school, you can maybe go some other place. And so I was running from who knows what, trying to get out of there, misguided notions from film about what it was all about. And it wasn't anything like what I expected. So I just kind of ambled into it out of fear, desperation. I don't know what. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Southeastern just basically felt like an extension of the same same stuff of home. You didn't quite you didn't get that change from the up from undergrad. No, you know what? I'm misrepresenting it. What I just said is is not entirely true. I don't want to mischaracterize it. It was for those those first few years where I was doing nothing. It was an extension of all the other stupid shit I was doing. Right. And then I reached a turning point where I said, okay, I'm gonna stop goofing off. 
I'm going to take this seriously. That's a whole nother story, mm-hmm. that turning point. And then I got some really great professors who saw something in me. I was going to apply to, I don't want to diss any other schools, but when I thought about going to graduate school, I was going to apply to places that I thought some guy from Southeastern could maybe get into. And then had some professors looking out for me. One helped me get a paper published, got me on a project of his, got a paper published in a very good journal, which improved my ability to get into better graduate schools significantly. Another guy told me when I told him where I was applying, said, you know, you should apply to Chapel Hill. And I remember him saying that, and Chapel Hill was a well-ranked program at the time, I guess it still is. And I thought, wow, this guy believes in me because there's no way in hell I'm going to get into that place. But one guy, Victor Bissonnette, sitting in his trailer because they were doing renovation on the psych building. They put him in some trailer out behind the library. We're sitting there. I'm doing a course with him on multiple regression because I took the one stats class they had in the psych department, loved it, thought it was great. He's teaching me about R square and beta coefficients. And he told me, because he believed in me, you should apply to Chapel Hill. And then that gave me a bit of aspiration. Okay, maybe I can turn this into something. And then I applied, I did go to Chapel Hill and that path, what happened in between eventually led me to Singapore in this conversation right now because a man in a trailer believed in me. So it it wasn't all just an extension of home. There was this part where I met some other dudes who really gave a shit and looked out for me and turned things around for me. And so the path to Singapore after, after school, how did that happen? I, I went to do a postdoc in Arizona, thought, okay, this is great. I'm working with a top dude in behavioral economics, but Arizona is not exactly Harvard and getting into Academia is very difficult. It's very elitist. So then I decided to move back to North Carolina because I found a postdoc at Duke. Went there. It sucked. What? Didn't like it at all. What? What about it? Uh, the program? The the. I, I just I was managed, and I I don't I don't work very well if I'm managed to put it politely. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. So then, then I went back to Arizona, got an email one day from someplace I barely knew what it was, INSEAD, which is the school I'm at right now. Most people there American have never heard of it. Sounds like a truck driving academy, but it's actually a, a well-ranked business school. They invited me to give a lecture on research I was doing, to go give a, a talk about some research I was doing on something sexually called the secretary problem, which is some applied probability stuff. Went to France, gave a job talk, went back to Duke where I was miserable. Because actually the first time I went, it was still while I was at Duke. While I was at Duke, they said, would you like to come back and teach statistics. I went to France. I taught statistics to a bunch of MBA students, had no idea what an MBA student was, Mm. told them a bunch of stories when Mm. I was teaching statistics. I was intimidated as hell because they went to Harvard and these other places, taught statistics, told a bunch of redneck stories to them. They liked it. 
got very high, you know, 4.9 out of five ratings, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Got invited back again, taught statistics again, got a full-time job, moved to Singapore. That's a shittily, shittily told story <laughs> about getting a job in Singapore because I told stories while I was teaching statistics to some MBA students in France. That's wild. But that's the point. Edit that you... out, brother. <laughs> no, I like the journey. But 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 that's the point where you started to understand like the power of storytelling in a, I guess, in a prof professional capacity. Like not that's just- when it, That's when it, it, it turned into- opportunity it wasn't just good conversation but it, yeah. it created opportunity real so opportunity for me at at carolina did you know that you wanted to go into academia i i i did you you had said i didn't that. know that i wanted to go to, i didn't know you know that i wanted to go to a business school right I ended up in a business school so i did a psych right. phd ended up in a business school i don't know man i was so desperate just trying to catch up for all those lost years, because in my first year at Southeastern, remember, I went to Jody Foster crack cocaine high school. My first semester at Southeastern, I had to catch up. So I took a class called pre-algebra. Homie got an F in pre-algebra, right? What's pre-algebra? It's like subtraction. <laughs> I got an F. Why? Because I, I was just goofing off. Right. So by the time I got to graduate school, man, I just had to make up a lot of ground. So Mm -hmm. I was in the psych building until midnight, reading my stuff, just struggling, trying to catch up. I can't recall well at the time what I was thinking about the future. I was just trying to catch up. So at, at, at NCAD, the, the, the business school, when you started telling stories in the statistics class, did you, you continue that trend? Because I know like you, you said you got a you know, high ranking in terms of uh, your teacher score or whatever they call it. You continued that the next year. I know eventually it transitioned into teaching storytelling, but like, how the hell did that happen? It, yep, I started out teaching statistics. Then I started teaching behavioral decision-making, behavioral economics, mm -hmm. all throughout. So I'm teaching, I'm, I'm, I'm doing quite well, doing reasonably well, students like me and Early on, I'm, I'm mischaracterizing things because it's hindsight. Yeah. I did well in statistics. I think my attribution is because I told stories. I didn't really know why I did well. Mm. I just knew that I did well. Right. Then I taught this other class on behavioral decision-making, behavioral economics. It went well. Slowly, it started dawning on me that I'm doing something systematic. I'm telling stories. And the feedback was clear to me that what I was doing was working. Feedback in what sense? Not that goofy little score who gives a shit, but the students I would find, especially the ones who graduated, I would see them and they would tell me about something I taught two or three years before. Mm. And I was shocked by how well they could remember it. And what did they remember? They didn't remember any bullet points on any PowerPoint slide. They would remember some story that was an illustration of a point. And they would refer back to that story. And then finally, I thought, okay, that's the trick. That's what's happening. They don't like me because I'm good looking and charming. They actually like me because for the right reasons, it's that I'm giving them content and they actually remember it. And if you're teaching and the students don't remember it, you're not doing well. They were actually remembering it. So in that sense, at least I was doing well. Okay, can I systematize this? 
-hmm. Can I teach them what I'm doing? Because I'm doing it as a deliberate strategy now. I don't quite know how I'm doing it, but I know I have kind of a formula that I'm using to communicate these concepts. Then I got a class, used some of my social capital with the dean. Can I start a class in storytelling? Never existed before. Right. First time I taught it, I had one section, it was okay, but I didn't, I knew how to do it, but I didn't know how to teach it. Mm -hmm. Then I don't like sucking. I sucked the first time. Then I started systematizing it, codifying it. One section, the next year I went to two sections and it's just more or less doubled each year. Now, the majority of students end up taking the class. That is until I resigned. I just resigned recently to become right. an entrepreneur to do storytelling. But it, it started out as an experiment. Then I figured out that actually there are principles because I'd never read books on storytelling. I didn't know anything about this. I just did it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I'm not some Hollywood screenwriter. I didn't work at Pixar or any shit like that. I'm just a, a hillbilly who just learned how to do it at the deer camp. Mm -hmm. So at, did at, at some point, did you realize that there was this overlap and intersection between what you had actually studied, like the psychology, the neuroeconomics and all that sort of stuff about, you know, how our brain works, how we make decisions, what compels us? Did you start to, to when did you start to see that, that how that tied together with storytelling? I, I don't know when, but I know that I did. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing the psych PhD, my focus most of the time was on human memory. And so by the way, just to step out of this for one second. Sure. I have a, a very simple model of communication. It's I apply it to everything, to startup pitches, to sales, to this conversation right now. It's that we should always have four objectives. The first is we should get our audience's attention. And by the way, I, I, I like about two minutes ago, if you go back and you watch this tape, you were a little bit distracted. I was a little bit boring. We had kind of a lull in this conversation because I went weak for a little bit, started losing you. You weren't as engaged. I saw that. Fair enough. I agree with you. So the first goal was to get our audience's attention. The second is to make sure that they understand our point. The third is to make sure that people actually remember what it is that we're communicating. And the fourth, the holy grail, is to communicate so that other people can retell others what we've said. Now, if you have those as four goals, attention, understanding, memorable, repeatable, there's very good research in psychology. What I was doing with one of those professors at Southeastern, Hunter McAllister, was working at the intersection of law and psychology. Mm -hmm. And back then I got very interested in jury decision-making. People spend a lot of time studying that. And if you wanna get a jury to remember your argument, if you're a lawyer, very simple. You know what you do? You don't go give them a bunch of statistics. You tell them a story. There's something called the story model. And it's very, very clear from research and psychology, although you don't really need to do an experiment to verify this, you and I both know it. Everyone should know it, that people retain stories very well. So I knew that, but then I started adding in some other bits. Okay, so what do people remember? Because remember I was studying memory when I was doing my PhD. A few things, they remember distinct things. So if I give you a list, bed, rest, awake, tired, dream, hippopotamus, doze, slumber, snore, nap, peace, yawn, drowsy, or if, if I ask you an hour later, remember that list, everyone's gonna remember hippopotamus. Why? Because it was distinct. So there are just some basic ways that memory works. 
And if you start leveraging those characteristics, once you're aware of them in your storytelling, for instance, adding something in your story that's distinct and therefore memorable, which will then enable people to better remember fragments of your story. And then the way memory works is we reconstruct the past. We don't have recordings. So if you enable them to retain fragments of your story, it makes it easier for them to reconstruct the story and then in turn retell it to other folks. You can start basically engineering using psychology, the stories that you tell so that they're more effective. Yeah, if you have the the, pil the pillars or the fragments and then, then you can build off off of those fragments and eventually fill out that whole timeline instead of just looking at a blank timeline and be like, all right, what was the story again? Boom, that's it, yeah. that's all it takes. So that was a, a great explanation of how memory works. What about, I know that you work with decisions. What about decision-making? What, what goes on in the head when someone is forced with a decision? We've heard your story, you've talked about a lot of decisions that you've gone through. Sometimes it's, we're not consciously, you know, we just do shit, but how does, how does the mind work when it's like they're faced with a choice? Yep. You can, you can leverage a number of characteristics. So for instance, if you are doing a sales pitch or mm -hmm. an investor pitch, mm -hmm. well, what are people sensitive to? We know from behavioral economics, a lot of people listen to this read thinking fast and slow. They know that Kahneman Tversky stuff. People are very sensitive to losses, for instance. So one thing you learn, if you go to business school, you take a class on behavioral decision-making, they're gonna teach you about framing and loss aversion, that people are much more sensitive to the thought that they might lose something than mm -hmm. they are to the opportunity they might gain something. So in your stories, if you can start to paint a picture that if the person doesn't buy your product, or if they don't invest in you right now, because you make that case strongly by illustrating your pitch, by telling them a story, and you make them sensitive to the potential loss of it, they're much more likely to say yes. So you, you can start framing things in a certain way to get the desired outcome. Now, it's not a Jedi mind trick and it's not manipulation, but you can just realize, okay, people are sensitive to loss. People are quite prone to the anticipation of regret so if I can frame this story to get my counterparty to imagine himself in the future, not saying yes to me right now, how mm -hmm. shitty that's going to feel if this thing works out. If I can leverage anticipated regret right now by framing it, by getting him to, to imagine himself in the future, I might increase the probability that I get what I want, a yes, for instance. So all that's pretty basic 101 kind of stuff that you can start to piece it together in an engineering sure. way to tell the stories with much greater intentionality. Yeah, it, it is. I still find, I mean, so many people struggle with it, right? So many people that are, that are trying to launch something that are, are uh, trying to raise money, trying to do anything like that. Don't get that, you know? So I think it's super helpful, even though it's, it's, it is simple. It is simple psychology, but um, I don't know people, like we said, you know, people make up these monsters and these blocks and these obstacles that don't necessarily need to be there when it's just like, it's just human communication. How would you respond to somebody if they were trying to convince you to come on board to something? You know, I, I think a, a big part of that. So the, the boogeyman in this kind of investor context, mm. sales context is the false equivalence that storytelling equals bullshit. Right. Some people think that they, oh man, you're telling me a story. That means that you're lying to me or you're making up stuff. No, brother, I'm just, I'm just piecing together stuff and I'm showing you an interesting documentary so that you understand what it's all about. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I think that 
equivalence that it amounts to BS is a big obstacle to a lot of folks. Oh, if I tell them a story, they're going to think I'm bullshitting them. No, mm-hmm. if, if you bullshit them, they're going to think that. But if you tell them the truth, right? If you tell them the truth, then they're not going to think that unless you do it poorly. So you should plan, you should take a course from me, and you should work with you. You should do things, but just be truthful. Yeah. Storytelling is not lying. So I know that you, you've spent uh, spent some time in investing sounds stupid, but that you have invested in some, in some companies and that's a part, big part of your life as well. When you made the decision to, you know, put skin in the game, to put money into the pot, to back these people, was it because of something like that? Was it responding to the person and the story they were telling? Like what gave you that? Um, Cause I know it was always, it was early stage, right? Yep. so it's not like hey do you want to put money in apple something had to compel you to say like no i believe in this one yeah i, I mostly invested in it was powerpoint decks that's what they were when i invested in them. it was an idea that some dude had hmm. the I'll, I'll tell you about my first one it's the best example of it <clears throat> and it and it turned out to be true christoph zrinner this mad genius German doctor doing an MBA polymath came to me, said, together with my classmate, Ben, we're gonna start a word of mouth advertising company in China. I still had student debt at the time, hadn't paid off my student debt, but I was making a little bit of money, finally had a job, felt like I was rich. And I thought, wow, this dude's asking me to invest in a startup. That sounds cool. Cause I'm a hillbilly, feel like I'm a phony, don't belong here. Did a psych PhD. I don't know anything about business. I just learned what an MBA was when right. I came to this place. <laughs> right. I, I, don't, I don't know what preferred class of chairs, liquidation preference. I, I get all these terms. I don't know what any of it means, but man, I'm about to be a startup investor. And Drinner said to me, look, if, if you invest in this, you, you could lose all your money. And I told him, and it turned out to be true. I said, okay, I get that. And I, I didn't really get what it meant, but I just said that I got it. Because I knew there was a logical possibility, but I didn't know how probable it was. And I said, look, what I'm doing is, dude, I'm just buying a very expensive movie ticket right now because you guys are gonna go off and do all this cool shit in China. And I kind of get to ride along and so I'm buying a movie ticket, which for me was just a way of saying, I get to be part of this story. Mm-hmm. I get to be there riding shotgun with you. And it's true. They went to China, sales guys screwed them, right? They had all this ups and down, major drama. Eventually they got acquired by a French company doing something similar, got an exit out of it. And each of these has been these dramas that I get to be close to and what going back to your question, more substantive is that that's been the experience of it. And I got into it because I wanted to be part of a story Mm. and it has been that. And what works now, what resonates with me, some dude, some person, a lady, I'm investing in a lady right now who's trying to bring increased sexual wellness to women. I've invested in all kinds of stuff. And the people who just come with fire and enthusiasm and a strong story about how they're gonna really just change shit that, that's very inspiring and very motivating, much more than some feature lists, some you know, $200 billion total addressable market stuff, but I like big markets, but, but when someone comes with a big 
powerful, real, authentic story about how they're going to do something. Man, who doesn't want to be part of that? I know I do. So I kept buying movie tickets. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I'm 47 years old. I'm about to move back to North Carolina. And I can do it because, you know, I bought some of those movie tickets. It worked out. It's okay. So, I, you know, buy movie tickets, participate, and invest in the people who have those stories because they, most, most of them will fail. But often the ones who do have the storytelling talent, who have the vision, they can find the right people to work for them because they inspired them. It's much easier when they're doing sales because what they do for you, they can do for the customer. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's an incredible asset. When you find it in people, it's an incredible asset to invest in. Did you ever, do you ever find yourself like, are you helping those, uh, those founders like tell their story or are you just kind of hands off and just, I'm putting money in, in, or do you help early on? Yeah. Early on, it was hands off because I didn't know that it was a thing that I could do. Right. Right. So this is, I first started doing it in 2008. I didn't know. And now progressively more and more where I'm, when I'm working with people, that's kind of the agreement now when I get involved that that's my function. It's not just my money, but that's my function. At first, no, and regretfully, no, mm-hmm. now much more so. I keep, um, we keep coming back to this concept of mentors, uh, for, 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 for lack of a better term, or just to use a, a general term to apply to all of them. There's always been people in your life uh, that have influenced the direction in which your mm-hmm. life goes, whether it's the cool kid next door to the teacher at school, you know, and obviously as a storyteller, we know the value of, of a mentor. Now you, you, you have found yourself in that position for, for younger founders or people starting something new. I had a couple of questions about that because also you've been a teacher. Now you're in a, you know, in a, in a role where your job is to convey information and to help, you know, young men and women get to the next, the next stage, the next level, whatever that might be. Um, So first, and, and I know you've done coaching as well. In your opinion, what makes a good teacher or coach? What aspects, what, what elements, what abilities make a good teacher or coach? Number one, you need to be a good listener. Hmm. That's the most important thing because if, if you listen, you, you, you start to notice what people really need. If you just come in and you're just full is, of answers, yeah. but you're not responding to the person on the other side, you're not gonna give them what they need. So you need, to, you need to listen, you need to be patient, you need to be honest. You know, if it's shit, you need to tell them it was shit. And you just really need to have the best intention. I know, I know this sounds like some rah-rah, Oprah Winfrey special stuff, but you, you really need to have the best intention for them and just really wanna help but be honest with them. Most fundamentally, listen. Hmm. I think that's what it amounts to. And know what you're doing. And know and be able to say, I told you before we get, before you hit play, I said, if you ask me something and I don't know the answer, I'm sorry, man, but I'm gonna say I don't know. And I and I and I apologize in advance because some people that disrupts the flow because they have these questions listed out. Right, right. <laughs> if someone says they don't know, they don't know what to do. And I and I think that's a very important part of being a teacher. Is to, 
as best you can, know what you know, and don't step too far outside your wheelhouse. Don't start yeah. giving bad advice because you're too scared to say, I don't know. We're coming back to the same like psychological issues, you know, of that imposter syndrome and all that. That's a knee jerk re reaction to feeling that way. It's like, oh, I'll just make something up. You know, it's okay to not know something. How are you going to know everything? And you know where it shows itself, its ugly self the most often? Parenting. So that's one way I'm trying to approach, you know, uh, uh, raising my daughter is like, if she asks me something, which now she's almost three. So a lot of questions are coming. Uh, you know, if I don't know it, I don't make up some bullshit. I try to like, you know what, let's try to, let's try to find the answer, you know, or something like that. It's totally fine, but we are ego driven and we're insecure and we, yeah, if you get challenged by that, oftentimes people will resort to just making something up just to just to stop 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 looking at me stop shining the light on me what about what about so okay with teacher and coach and this may be the same answer um what about let's flip that into the business world the professional world what about a founder of a startup or or a leader we could call it what what do you think would make when you know if you were investing in those people uh with the startups and not necessarily just their idea what common traits did you see among them they're like oh this person will be able to do what he or she says they're going to do but still having to lead a team through the you know mucky world of startups it's it's easier for me to answer in the negative who, who doesn't have it yeah the person who just clearly can't say i don't know and what's a good leading indicator of that when they get defensive when you challenge them you can, you can see that the ego is suffering. And then it's not hard to make out, man, when they just start making up shit, right? And it, as soon as someone does that, because they can't admit right now, I don't know, well, what are they gonna do when the stakes get real later on? Are they gonna hide stuff from us, the investors, from other people, from their mm. team? So it, it's, that's actually pretty common. Very, very common. Stay away from that. But the, the person who says, I don't know, and you feel is about you know, twice as smart as you are, find that person. That's the best person. Do you find that sharing stories and now leaning into storytelling as much as you have in your life, it's become, it's become your life, not just a part of your life. Do you think that has helped you be conscious and cognizant of when you're slipping into those patterns and I know that you are conscious because you've already called it out like whether it was um you know when you said you started to lose my attention or something like that and I'll flip it and put it on me I still get defensive about things at times but now I'm tuned into it and so when I feel myself reacting that way I'll like whoa 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 what's going on why are you getting so upset about this thing that could and should be a little thing you know what's going on but i feel and i find that most people it's going on up here they they aren't ever in touch with it so my my question is do you feel like being tapped into that just ability to tell stories and understand how stories work and how the mind you know works with stories helps you be in tune with that is it something else i think so but here's my paranoia my paranoia is that I'm telling myself the same story that you're telling yourself about tapping into that. Mm -hmm. And I'm just blind to something mm. that I, I'm just doing the same stuff that everyone else is doing, but
but I've told myself this story and I'm experiencing reality in this way. We don't see things as they are, we see things as we are, that I have this story and it's, and it's governing that experience and that I'm mistaken and I'm a hypocrite mm-hmm. and I'm, a, I'm obnoxious, like you're potentially obnoxious for thinking that you're special. No, I'm I don't special. know, man. My mom <laughs> told me very clearly that I was special. <laughs> How do you change? I don't know. I don't know, man. Really, honestly, I don't know. I I think I'm I'm sure I'm just ordinary, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I just it's not a superpower. It's just something that we all have access to. And then I just think that I've been talking and thinking a lot lately about just that story we tell ourselves, right? And how we change that. And I feel like being self-aware is the first step to, to changing or fixing any of our problems, just understanding that it's a problem, asking ourselves, why did I react that way? Why do I feel this? Do I feel this way? You know, um, and I'm just curious. I was like, I wonder if the fact that we're constantly telling stories, which is about peeling those layers of the onions back, if that's one of the things that, you know, helps help people get there. I try to help people get there. But is there another way like, you know, we've talked a lot today and I know how you feel about imposter syndrome uh, and things like that is, you know, how would you advise someone to go about changing that narrative in their head that they're they're realizing that they've been subscribing to for x amount of years or or whatever so simple you have to tell it to other people Mm, storytelling it's yeah storytelling is a social activity right people can go on wikipedia and read uh wittgenstein's private language argument where more or less he argued that you can't have a private language because language is a, a social activity, that communicating is a social activity. And I think the same is true. How, how'd you like that Wittgenstein reference, dude? I'm a professor. <laughs> Stop flexing. <laughs> that, that storytelling is a social activity. And when we do it, and we're not bullshitting, mm-hmm. it's incredibly cathartic. And it's back to that liberating idea that we talked about 43 minutes ago. It's that that activity and that that connection that you get with other folks, I think it's cathartic, and to really answer your question, it makes you see it much more clearly. So I was I was being a little bit insincere when I said I think I'm exactly the same as other folks. I I do think I do think that I'm better, maybe not necessarily than other folks, but definitely better than my former self, who wasn't talking about some of this stuff. So just doing an A-B contrast yeah. with that dude, yeah. I'm Plus way better off. That. Yeah, yeah. So, and, go ahead. And, and, I, and I got that by, I said this earlier, just, just really by talking about this stuff. When I started owning it and sharing it, and critically, here's another part that we haven't talked about enough. Not only owning it and sharing it, but my favorite word is plotting it. Mm. Okay, so, so the story is just one way of defining stories. It's just the, the sequence of events laid out in chronological order. But when we plot a story, we see how all these pieces link together and we can move around in time when we're articulating it, communicating it, make sen- making sense of it, doing what people conventionally think of as storytelling, that, that activity of plotting it and seeing how all the pieces fit together, plot, right? Plot, right? We hear that word plot. When we start plotting stories, that's when that sense-making really starts kicking in and we see it for what it is because a story by itself can just be meaningless. 
But when we plot it and we link those pieces together and we see the causality that runs throughout the contingencies, that's when we start making sense of it. That's when we start really getting liberated. So it's not just talking about it, but it's talking about it and seeing it clearly. Mm -hmm. That's the magic, I think. So, you know, to that point, uh, and I know that you've mentioned already that uh, that you're, you've you've left your 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 job at the school to to become an entrepreneur, and you created Plot Wolf. Um, so, I, well, you know, let everybody listening know what you know what you do, um, and then uh, my question is, uh, what what are the things blocking most of the people that you serve that you help? I think most, so what do I do? I mostly, I work with companies. Mm -hmm. So I, I work with CEOs, directors, salespeople, all kinds of folks. Mm -hmm. And usually they have just very clear objectives. I have this message. I want to communicate it effectively. I want to sell more of this stuff. How do I communicate its right. value more effectively? I want to raise venture capital, I'm about to do my series A, mm -hmm. how do I pitch this more effectively? And the biggest obstacle that most people have is, one, they just don't know what a story is. So I contrast just a simple binary story, which is this platted thing that I was talking about, which is visual. It's almost like giving your audience a mental movie. Mm -hmm. That's what you're doing when you're doing proper storytelling. I've seen some of your stuff. You're very good at it. Very good at giving details. I get this mental movie when you're telling stories. You're really good at it. You, Rain. Thank you. I mean that. I appreciate it. And I contrast that with giving what I call a shitty little speech or SLS. Yeah. And what's the characteristic of the shitty little speech? It's just kind of the bullet points. We're a highly motivated transformational organization <laughs> and people say stuff, but when they say that, you don't see anything, right? You hear yeah. words, but you don't get any mental images. And what do those words mean? Like they say these words that are so vague, highly, you know what I mean? Just, I mean, obviously you've heard it a million times. You just spouted it off, but it's just like, none of that shit means anything, you know? Yes, it has a definition, mm -hmm. But you didn't tell me anything. I can't walk like you know. You've mentioned this already, and this is the beautiful thing about stories. I can't walk away and pitch that to my you know my partner at all. Oh well, they're a highly transformative, you know. <laughs> but mainly because they failed on the first objective. Remember the objectives: attention, understanding, memorable, repeatable. They start saying that, dude. You get twitchy, right? You can't even listen while it's happening, and so the gate just closes. You don't even hear it. So. To answer your question, right? I want to keep the thread. The biggest obstacle is just an awareness that there is this other intentional activity of storytelling. And when approached properly, it's, it amounts more or less to a design problem, an engineering problem. How can I structure my message <clears throat> so that it has distinct elements, so that it's plotted, so that it makes a point at the end, so that it's visual when I communicate it. And when, once they have an awareness of that, the next challenge, okay, that's what it is. <clears throat> then a lot of people think, but but I don't have any, I don't have any stories. And then the next challenge is to say, look, dude, you went to Starbucks this morning. And that trip to Starbucks can help you sell this heart valve right now when yeah. you think about it. So we're gonna take this raw material, let's work through. And that's a very frustrating process, it takes a long time. Uh -huh. And now we do it, let's put it into this structure. And there's basic storytelling structure, right? 
Stories have setup, development, resolution, they have turning points, they have conflicts, all that stuff that everyone's heard about. They have that. So once they realize that that's a possibility, just realizing you're full of stories. And that, that takes a few examples. Once people see it, then it's that, ah. Dude, thank you for saying that. I say I have to say that so much. And there's a lot of questions that, that, that I could ask about that, but we're running short on time, so we'll have to save it. So my final question is, when you get your ass to North Carolina, are we going to shoot some shotguns or something? So I, I live in Singapore and in Singapore, you cannot have guns. Right. Right. So my, my fantasizing as I go on Amazon right now, we, we <laughs> just bought a house in Chapel Hill. We're getting remodeling done. Nice. <laughs> I go on Amazon and I got to take baby steps with my wife because my wife did not grow up with guns. Right, I, right. I had a whole arsenal. I mentioned it. So now I go and I'm looking at gun safes on Amazon. <laughs> like while other people are watching Netflix, yeah. I'm looking at gun safes. So Where's uh, we'll, where, we'll get it settled. Where did you uh, find a, a place in Chapel Hill? Whereabouts? It's off of Jones Ferry Road. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how. Well, yeah, yeah. Very well. I mean, so I have yeah. a ho- I have a house there uh, uh, that's a rental property just just south of Carborough, where you are, where jo- Jones Ferry is. So yep, not not yep. too far away. But yeah, man, sincerely, like uh, I just, you know, the brief chat that we had online, I knew that we would vibe today, confirmed it. I really appreciate you and 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 love the conversation. Would love to continue it and would love to just hang and not talk about stories. Talk about life. Clink some glasses together to if it, we man. can ever get sure. back to a normal, normal world. What's the status in Singapore in terms of like coronavirus? Is it is it there anymore? No, no, they, we're, we're negatively correlated with the rest of the world. Everyone else is going into lockdown. Yeah. It was announced a few days ago that we're going to phase three, which phase three means it's getting better. So yeah. we went well, from five people can get together to eight people and we're, we have yeah. zero well, community cases. We're going backwards here in the States, buddy. So welcome home. Well, I'll be there soon. <laughs> All right, man. Have fun uh, talking to Pakistan. I love that uh, I am, uh, I'm right before Pakistan. <laughs> I feel great about that. Uh, Thanks, man. I appreciate your time. Awesome, man. Thanks a lot. My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow. And that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on the Storytelling Lab.